All right. Um, so if you guys remember last week, uh, we closed out our um, sermon series on Micah. And this week we will be starting a new one. So um, we'll be starting a new sermon series on Acts. Um, and therefore our scripture reading is Acts. Um, it'll be starting with, oh, sorry, pardon me. With our new sermon series in Acts, we actually have a new responsive reading, um, the Acts Litany. So this is a responsive reading. Um, there's a presider and a congregation part, as you see. Um, I'll be reading both parts, um, but please read aloud at the times where it's time for the congregation to speak. All right. Pardon me. Okay, here we go. After Jesus died and rose again, he started something new. It was called the church. To form his body of believers, he first gave them power. Now please read with me. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Then he gave them a message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized. Then he gave them a fellowship and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Then he confirmed the message with signs and wonders. In the name of Christ Jesus of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then came persecution. They arrested the apostles, stoned Stephen, killed James with the sword, and there arose a great persecution. But the word of God is not bound, and the church continued to witness boldly in the name of Jesus. He has risen from the dead. Everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now let's all read together. All of these things remain true for us because we are the church. He has given us power, a message, a fellowship, and signs and wonders. And if persecution comes, his word will not be bound. All right, thanks all for reading with me. Um, yes, back to the scripture. So our scripture reading today comes from um, Acts chapter one, um, starting at the top with verse one. I'll give you a moment to turn to that in your Bibles or find it on your phone. Um, the text of the passage will also be in the little box um, in the corner. Um, this, this passage has a lot of, uh, tricky names, so please bear with me if I mispronounce them. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter one. In the first book, O Thelophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore 
that restore the kingdom to Israel, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood up by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from, Mount, from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simeon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now the man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called their own so that the field was called, the, called in their own language, Akeldema, that this field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So when, so one of the men who had accompanied us during, this, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barasabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who, hear, who knows the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, now I'm gonna turn our time over to Minister Jeff um, who will be preaching on this passage. This morning I brought with me a leash. It's my dog Clover's leash. It keeps her by my side when I walk her. Of course, as we walk, sometimes she's tugging and pulling and wanting to keep moving forward. Now, what happens if I were to unleash her? More likely than not, she would take off, prancing and running or chasing after other dogs, being free to be who she is, a dog. 
I have this leash with me because this morning we're going to be talking about something else that in a sense is getting unleashed. And that's the church. The church is unleashed to be who she is and to do what she is called to do. We're starting a new sermon series today through the first half of the book of Acts. And Acts talks a lot about the formation of the church, its identity, its mission. And this is coming at a time where churches across the world, especially our nation, are asking, what will the church look like after COVID-19? And even probably right now, what is COVID-19 doing to the church? How is it subconsciously reshaping our beliefs, our attitudes, and our behaviors when it comes to our corporate worship and fellowship? And does that align with Scripture? With credit to Pastor Jeff, the title of this sermon series is The Church Unleashed. Which begs the question, unleashed to do what? Unleashed to be what? My hope is that as we work our way through the first half of Acts, it will remind us of who the church is. It will challenge us and embolden us about what the church is called to do, even in the midst of a pandemic. And even when the pandemic subsides and the landscape of the world that we live in The way that we do things has drastically changed. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be jumping around in this chapter, so it might help to have your Bibles open so you can follow along. In this first chapter, we're going to see a lot of common themes that will end up reappearing along the way as we preach through the first 12 chapters. But today, there's, there's two big things that this passage lays out for us. The first is this, the identity of the church, God's people. The church is God's people. This is not news to many of us today, but it's pretty groundbreaking for the disciples. When you consider the unfolding of God's plan of salvation through Israel and now into the New Testament. And it's groundbreaking because the people of God is the community of Jesus' followers. Acts is actually part two of this one account that begins with the Gospel of Luke. Luke is probably the author of both volumes, and he he begins our passage like this. In the first book, that's the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom, whom he had chosen. So the first volume, the Gospel of Luke, describes what Jesus began to do and teach. The second volume, Acts, describes what Jesus continues to do and teach in and through the ministry of the apostles. Traditionally, Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles. Get it? It's all about the early church and what the apostles did. But on a higher level, you could think of it as the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. Because even in this first chapter, even though Jesus has ascended, he he reigns from his heavenly throne, is seated at the right hand of God, he continues to act through the apostles and the church. Luke is placing Jesus front and center at the formation of the church. The people of God now is the community of those who follow Jesus. 
Jesus leading his people through the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. The book of Acts has what we call an inclusio. It's bookended by this focus on the kingdom and on Christ's heavenly reign. And so in verse 3, Luke notes how Jesus taught the apostles about the kingdom of God. Verse 6, the apostles are asking whether Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel. And if we skip ahead to the end, there we see Luke writing about Paul in Rome. And it says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So the identity of the church is God's people. Specifically, that now means the community of those who follow Jesus. It's not being born a Hebrew or offering the right sacrifices. It's those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Or like Kanye's album, Jesus is King. Because he is King, God's kingdom is being restored in and through the church. Before Jesus ascends, his disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days, and they still don't quite get it. In their minds, they're probably still expecting an earthly, nationalistic kingdom. With Jesus resurrected and having been promised the Spirit, they reasoned that the Messianic era had arrived. The the final salvation of Israel was here, which meant for them the restoration of a military and political kingdom that would drive Israel out from under Roman occupation and restore national sovereignty to Israel. But that's not exactly what Jesus had in mind. I mean, yes, God's kingdom would be restored and it would be restored to Israel, but it would look differently. At the end of our passage, Jesus had already ascended and the remaining 11 apostles are gathered together in prayer with 120 of other Jesus' other followers. And Peter stands up to make the case that someone needs to come and take Judas's spot. If you remember, Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus, and we find out here that he took his own life shortly after. So Luke writes, So so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What does this all have to do with God's kingdom being restored and the identity of the church as God's people? Well, Matthias being numbered with the 11 apostles makes it 12 total again. And the 12 represents Israel. 
just like the 12 tribes. And so when the apostles asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This was part of it. God's kingdom was being restored through the reconstitution of the 12, which represents Israel. And then through the 12, the church would be formed and the nations would be invited to live under God's rule and reign his kingdom. The reforming, reforming of this 12 takes place between the commissioning and later in this next chapter, the first public preaching of the 12. And so it's an important step that is significant for the identity and the mission of the church. So the identity of the church is God's people, specifically the community of Jesus' followers. What difference does that make for them or for us? That Jesus is at the center of the church's identity is critical to the second main theme we see in our passage today. The mission of the church, Jesus' witnesses. Brothers and sisters, this is the calling of the church to be a community of followers of Jesus who together witness to Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. It's built into the mission statement of our church, CBCGB. It's, it's on our Crossbridge website. It's what we go over in membership class. We are a church in greater Boston that brings people across all cultures together in Christ to inspire, disciple, and send them to be global disciple makers. So from our passage, there's at least two points for us concerning the church's mission. First, stop staring and start spreading the gospel. After Jesus is lifted up, the disciples are standing there gazing up into heaven And these two men in white robes, probably angels, they appear and say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's like they're saying, stop staring and get going. Because Jesus just commissioned you. You Wait for the Holy Spirit, but then go. You, You have a task. A mission. In verses 7 to 8, he said to them, it's, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples were concerned with when the kingdom would come. Jesus' concern is about who will be in the kingdom. Jesus commissions them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Their mission is world missions. It begins at their doorstep and it continues to where the gospel is unreached. It transcends ethnic and geographical boundaries. Now, What difference does it make for us today? I started this sermon series asking these broad existential questions about the church, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Are we experiencing what Peter Greer calls mission drift? 
How much have we strayed from our calling? When we look at the formation of the early church in Acts, it's a picture of a missional church, an outward-facing church. Now, every church has its problems and its challenges. Even the early Christians had their fair share, and they had to deal with it. And we're going to see an example in chapter 6 later, but that didn't keep them from their focus on preaching the word, devoting themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The pandemic is hard on all of us. We don't want to spread COVID, but that should not keep us from spreading the gospel. Even if it's a little harder, needs a bit more creativity, or requires us to take maybe perhaps a bigger step out of our comfort zone. But my fear is that we will or we have married the two together in an unholy matrimony where to spread the gospel assumes we can only do so in a way that spreads COVID. And so we do neither. And as a result, any church like this would would naturally be more inward focused, would experience mission drift, would lose sight that we have been called to be witnesses to Jesus. Dr. Jim Singleton is a professor at Gordon-Conwell. He teaches classes like pastoral ministry, evangelism and discipleship, and transforming leadership through the local church. Now, I've taken several of his classes many years ago, and others in Crossbridge have, have taken them as well, like, like Chris and Emily. And one of the things that he talks about, and I'm going to borrow a lot from his lectures, is, is church paradigms and the shift in the types of churches over the years. There's three church paradigms that he brings up. Christendom, attractional, and missional. Christendom was that period in American history, like the, the 1950s and before, where there was a shared worldview between the church and the culture. And not just a worldview, but even a natural relationship. There was prayer in public schools. Elected officials highlighted their churches. Uh, churches themselves were, were very local, down the street. And everyone went to church. And even if you didn't, you still had a basic knowledge of the Bible stories because the church culture was the wider culture. And evangelism during Christendom was very much like the Little Bo Peep nursery rhyme. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and can't tell where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home, bringing their tails behind them. The problem was that the sheep never came home never came back home. The the 1960s arrived with its anti-institutionalism, sexual revolution, rock and roll, and theological liberalism, and, and the church began to decline. And out of the ashes of the Christendom church was born the attractional church. And their basic premise was, we got to make this church so attractive that people will want to come here instead of there. And so evangelism during this time was wanting to find the lost sheep from Christendom. They're not going to find their way back, and so we're going to lure them back. This meant providing a great worship experience, 
a great building, a great programs, a solid lead pastor, uh, like a CEO with great preaching and an awesome personality. And here you see the rise of a lot of megachurches. And none of this is, is inherently wrong. None of this is bad, but, but what happened was that there was this unconscious wedding with consumerism where we begin to see phrases like shopping for a new church. And the evangelism during this time was much like the mentality, if you build it, they will come. Or like Burger King, have it your way. Attractional churches wanted to find the lost sheep of Christendom. They found them. But then that was it. The, the great building, the great worship, all that became the end, not the means. And the gospel was truncated. There was no discipleship. And it was a challenge. Now, the third paradigm is the missional church. But the missional church is not the next church growth movement. The missional church is what we see in Acts beginning with Acts 1 and Jesus' commissioning. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Alan Hirsch defines it this way. Missional church is a community of God's people that defines itself and organizes its life around its real purpose of being an agent of God's mission to the world. In other words, the church's true and authentic organizing principle is mission. When the church is in mission, it is the true church. It means a congregation adopting together a missionary posture of going rather than coming. It means cultivating a culture of disciple-making and equipping its members for a task unfinished. If we believe that the church is a people, not a list of programs or, or a building, that this is what we mean when we say, we are the church rather than I go to the church, what difference would that make? One author put it this way, the missional church is pointed in five directions, looking upward to God as the source of mission, looking inward to themselves as those who manifest God's mission, looking backward to God's creational design for the world, looking forward to the coming of God's promised kingdom, and looking outward as we see to the nations as they proclaimed and promoted God's salvation. When it comes to our church, how can Crossbridge and CBCGB reflect its identity as followers of Jesus and its mission of witnessing to Jesus? In part, we have a missions committee that prioritizes bringing the gospel to unreached people groups and as its mandate states, helps to equip and mobilize the members of our church to participate to their fullest potential in the work of world evangelization in sending our own people into cross-cultural ministry, in committing financial resources to the task, in nurturing a corporate life of persevering intercessory prayer, and in upholding our missionary partners in loving relationship, both while in the field 
and at home. We yearn to see the members of CBCGB fully embracing God's intention for our church as an instrument in the work of advancing his kingdom among all peoples. So, being a missional church doesn't mean having a missions committee to do all the missionary work. Every week, we, we have a missionary of the week we, who we pray for, and in a few weeks, we're going to be changing things up a bit. There'll still be a PowerPoint slide, and whoever is presiding that week will still lead us in congregational prayer. But we're also going to have a video from our missionaries for that week where they will personally share those prayer requests with us. For our members who've been here a long time, you probably know all these missionaries. You have a relationship with them. Uh, Some of them you were in the same fellowship with. Uh, You get their newsletters, you pray for them, you give to them. But for also many of us, I assume, we we barely know them. We've never met them. We, We came after they left, or they left while we were still children and youth. We don't, we might not even know what they sound like. And we have no relationship with them, and that's sad. And, and while a video is still pretty one-sided, it'd be great if we could get like a, you know, a Skype call with them or something. But you know, I hope it at least will help us connect a little bit more to the church's mission and the mission that is being accomplished through the work of these brothers and sisters. And so that when they do come back, there'll be more than just a face on a PowerPoint slide. There'll be someone hopefully we'll reach out to, to be missional alongside them. What other difference does it make for us from this passage? Twice in our passage, we see this word witness. The church is called to be Jesus' witness. This is who we're testifying about. And so major implication is that this means that your testimony is not about you, at least not primarily, primarily, ultimately. Oftentimes, the way we might share our testimony might go something like this. My life was horrible. I was doing X, Y, and Z. I I found meaning in this and that, but it felt empty. But Jesus died on the cross. Now I live the good life. I have purpose. I serve. I married a doctor. And you can have this life too. Our testimonies sound like Maxwell Lord from the recent Wonder Woman uh, movie. Life is good, but it can be better. Our testimonies are are littered with I language. And then we slip in something about Jesus or God, and we exchange the living water offered by Jesus with a Kool-Aid, just so that it tastes better when we put the focus of our testimonies on us rather than God. We separate uh, talking about the gospel from talking about our testimony. And so we, we neglect to testify to Jesus' resurrection, to testify to his grace, to his forgiveness of our sin. And instead, what might happen is we testify to ourselves. Another implication. To be a witness also doesn't just mean being Christ-like. It means proclaiming Christ To be a witness doesn't simply mean being supernaturally kind and good as if our good works will do the hard work of explaining the gospel. 
As Paul writes, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so if Christ is not proclaimed, our commission is not obeyed. And as we are entrusted with this mission, we are given this promise in Acts 1. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to accomplish its mission. Twice, Jesus mentions the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the the third person of the Trinity. A who, not a what. A person, not a force. This, This isn't Star Wars. This is not the way. In verse 4, we see, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses. The Holy Spirit will, will cleanse us and transform us and he will empower us to accomplish our mission. How does the, the, the Spirit empower us? Through transformation through boldness and courage, through effective witness. In Acts 4, the believers, after having been arrested and released, they come together and pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What will the church look like after COVID? What is COVID doing to the church, our church now? I don't have all the answers, but I look to scripture and Acts 1 reminds us of our identity and our mission as God's people, the church. And that identity and mission does not change whether we are meeting in person or meeting online. One author put it like this, the ordinary people of God, equipped with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, dedicated to the son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. May we strive to live this out even now, especially now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness. We give thanks for the power of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to accomplish the mission you have entrusted us with. May we as a church come together to make your name known and to spread the gospel and to be witnesses to you, to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's pray. God, we give thanks for you are able. You are more than able. You have equipped us, you have empowered us by your spirit. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen.